Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communication Manager, Kit Zapiniak. Hi, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again this week. Remember, you can always catch the the Bridge Builder Show every week, not only on the radio now, or on your favorite podcast app, but you can also now catch us on our YouTube channel. If you ever miss an episode, just go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. Jason, who are you talking with this week? Well, this week we're going to be joined on the line by Patrick Brown from the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He authored a really uh, intriguing piece in the New York Times this week called Why Working Class Parents Don't Buy what DC is selling. So we're going to be talking with uh, him about family policy, child allowances, tax credits, and ways that we can support families and promote family economic security. It's so important right now that we're talking about what families need. It sounds like it'll be a really great interview. Remember everyone who's watching and listening, if you ever have an idea for a discussion, send that my way. You can shoot me an email. The email address is show at mncatholic.org, or you can leave us a comment in the, on the YouTube channel and on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And I will be back at the end of the program with this week's action item. I'm now joined by Patrick Brown. Patrick is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, where his work focuses on developing a robust pro-family economic agenda and supporting families as a cornerstone of a healthy and flourishing society. Prior to joining EPPC, he served as Senior Policy Advisor to Congress's Joint Economic Committee, where he published reports on child care affordability and education policy. Prior to his time on Capitol Hill, he worked as a government relations staffer for Catholic Charities USA and a book reviewer for Catholic News Service. Patrick, we're here to chat about your article in the New York Times and your research on families. Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program. Uh, thanks, Jason. Thanks for inviting me. It's a delight to have you on the show. Thanks for your time this morning. Tell us about the Ethics and Public Policy Center and your role there. Sure. Well, the Ethics and Public Policy Center has for decades been one of the leading voices in D.C. for promoting families and in, in, uh, the pro-life cause and a number of different areas around supporting a strong, healthy society. Um, I joined over the last summer to focus specifically on economic policy and to think about ways that you know, the scholars at EVPC who have been doing this work have, have, have been doing tremendous strides on sort of social policy and, and legal protection for the unborn and that sort of thing. But when, especially as we think about what the future of uh, public policy could look like after uh, the upcoming Supreme Court decision in the Dobbs case out of Mississippi, we really mm-hmm. want to think about what the what policy, what the government can be doing to strengthen families from an economic point of view. So if we have a... Um, a, a, uh, a, a regime in which abortion on demand is no longer legal, how can we make sure that, that families who are in these sort of crisis pregnancy situations get the resources they need? And that sort of question. So that's kind of what motivates my work at EPPC. I'm really happy to be working there with, along with, with some incredible scholars. And so as I'm thinking about the family as the cornerstone of a strong society, um, that's kind of what kicked off a lot of the work that I'm doing. And that's what inspired the report that we really talked about. Mm-hmm. Besides sort of the recent political dynamics, the Dobbs case and other things, what got you interested in economic analysis of the family more generally? Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I started off at Catholic Charities USA out of out of uh, college. And so there I, I did a lot of work on sort of welfare, uh, anti-poverty programs. 
and, and thinking about the sort of root causes that causes a lot of families to be struggling and, and, and sometimes pushing moms to choose abortion, which is, you know, in my mind, a, a, a crime and, and or, you know, that, that's on society's soul, right? That we need to be doing more as a, as a, as, as a, a brothers and sisters of, of those who are sort of in these, um, you know, tremendously difficult situations. And so, you know, that's sort of how I got started thinking about, all right, what is the role of, of the government? What is the role of the state? In, in, in providing for parents and, and families. And, and, and so from there, thinking about the ways that the current tax code or current safety net programs either penalize or, or disincentivize marriage or these other things that we know are important for human flourishing. And so I, I, that's kind of how I got started. And then I, I went off about a master's and, and worked on Capitol Hill for a, little, for a little while. But I think, you know, as, as I mentioned, there have been so many people, as I know, in Minnesota, there have been so many people who have been fighting the cause of being pro-life from the cradle to the grave for, for so long. And, and I think it's it's really a, a, a testament to their devotion that, that, there has, that there is this, now this opportunity in front of us with the court the way it is. But we need to be thinking beyond that, beyond just making abortion illegal, but as the phrase goes, making it unthinkable, too. And I think part of that requires... A, a federal and state-led response to make sure that families have the resources they need. You could say that social conservatism has a lot of insights about protecting life and, and promoting marriage and things like that. But uh, as you're alluding to, economics matters in terms of marriage rates, birth rates, divorce rates, abortion right. rates. You know, the, the, the word economics comes from the Greek word oikos, meaning right. the household. And I think there's yeah. a connection here. Um, should the family be that, you know, we talk a lot about the individual in social policy and in, uh, in liberal societies, the individual is always considered sort of the cornerstone building block, but really, especially from the Catholic standpoint, it's the family. Should the family be the uh, uh, principal starting point in both macro and, and microeconomic policy and, and that sort of analysis? A hundred percent. I think for a long time, uh, the individual has been put forth, especially, you know, if you think about the Cold War, right, and, and you had this sort of Soviet collectivist style of thinking about the economy uh, that didn't differentiate between individuals at all. So there was an emphasis, especially here in the U.S., of, of putting the individuals front and center and thinking about things in sort of almost libertarian or Randian terms. And that may have been appropriate at the time as, as, a, as a counterpoint to the, you know, the, the evils of the, of the you know, Soviet regime. But I think we may have gone too far in that direction. And so I think when we think about where domestic policy is now uh, and where social policy is and, and how we think about the economy and, and, and what makes up a flourishing society, thinking about the family as a fundamental unit of analysis helps us realize that the economy is not Man is not made for the economy, but but it should serve the needs of, of families. And so, making life easier for parents, uh, starting from you know, uh, you know, thinking about you know matters around paid family leave, or or uh, you know, making making it easier for them to make choices around childcare and education, uh, and and also making it easier for them to to balance work and family life by giving them more predictable schedules or that sort of thing. I think these are completely things that, that uh, the government should be thinking about and, and, and any agenda that's trying to be you know, pro-family, pro-working class can't just be uh, thinking about the cultural side of things, although those are important, but also about the economics as well. So I 100% agree that the family should be sort of the foundational uh, lens through which we see economic policy. 
what inspired me to invite you on was your recent piece in the New York Times entitled Why Working Class Parents Don't Buy What DC Is Selling. And sometimes uh, policymakers fall into the habit of cooking things up in a lab. And, you know, how did it, you know, uh, you know, the old academic question, uh, how does it work in reality? And, you know, the, the answer, well, who cares? How does it work in theory? That is what counts. But you, you assembled some focus groups of families to uh, understand what they need and what they wanted. Tell us about uh, the genesis of that article and, and your research, uh, asking working parents and families what they really need. Sure. I mean, I, I've been on Capitol Hill. I've been in those discussions about how does it work on theory. And that may have been part of what inspired some of this work to think about, you know, when, when DC talks about childcare or talks about uh, child benefits or, or some of the things that are being thrown around in, in the wake of, of the coronavirus and, and the sort of thing, which are important discussions to have, a lot of times they sort of just automatically imbibe the values of the type of people who work in DC, people went, who went to elite colleges, people who are in dual career households, uh, people who are sort of gunning for uh, that corner office suite or you know, a job at the top of an organization. And nothing against those people, they're, they're hardworking, earnest people, but they just have a tremendous blind spot when it comes to uh, somebody who's working in the suburbs, commuting to work, wishing that he had more time to spend with his kids and, and doesn't think about policy in the same way that, that people along the Acela Corridor do. So working with the Institute for Family Studies, which is a tremendous think tank that does great work on the uh, sort of uh, understanding what makes families flourish, uh, we set up three think tank, or three focus groups, excuse me, one in uh, Southwestern Ohio made up of white parents, one in uh, around Atlanta uh, of black working class parents, and one in San Antonio, Texas, talking to Hispanic working class parents. And we just spent two hours with each of those groups talking through a, a bunch of questions ranging from sort of broad conceptual questions about how they see their work. Was it more of a career or is it more of a job? Uh, do, they, do they find something valuable in the, in the idea of a male breadwinner or are they more egalitarian the way a lot of people in DC talk about it? And then we spent a lot of time drilling down about some of the policies that are being proposed, especially in the uh, Biden administration's proposed American Families Plan things like universal child care, things like the universal child benefits, which have been rolled out for one year, but are being considered for a possible extension. And I think part of what I found wasn't surprising. I think it's, you know, the, the idea that people are sort of frustrated and, and, and or torn between wanting to be a, a provider and also wanting to take care of their kids and feeling like sometimes work gets in the way of being able to do it the way they want to. I think that doesn't, that shouldn't surprise anyone. I think there are things that that politicians and policymakers can be learning from those, those insights. But I think one thing that surprised me was how much of a rhetorical and, and just a, a, a real sense of purpose people gained from their identity as being workers. And these aren't people who were, uh, you know, like I said, these aren't people gunning for, for the C-suite. These are people who are working in retail or working uh, from home as, as you know, selling things on the internet or, or one person was, was delivering things on DoorDash and that sort of thing. Like these are people who are just, just making ends meet. They're firmly in the working class and they really feel like they're putting in the hours and, and trying to make it, trying to get by and, and they're earning the benefits that they get from DC. And they felt like the idea of making things universal doesn't resonate with them. And when, so when we talk about making all families eligible for child benefits, um, they, they were very concerned about the idea of, of, of sort of incentivizing people to, to not work and to just sort of, collect the money. Now, you know, in my sort of policy role, I think, you know, we're talking about, you know, $3,600 per year for kids. That's, 
that's probably not you know, in the Biden plan. That's probably not enough to, to cause a lot of people to drop out of the labor force. But I think as the signal that we're sending through policy, I completely understand where these people are coming from and, and wanting to make sure that, that rewarding work is still a central component because as we know from Catholic social teaching, the dignity of work is so essential for, for someone to achieve sort of meaning of life and having a role model in the household exhibiting those values and those habits of, of holding down a job and providing for the family is something we want to be encouraging. So I think it was a, it was a really rewarding project to be working on. We're speaking with Patrick Brown from the Ethics and Public Policy Center about his recent New York Times article, Why Working Class Parents Don't Buy What DC Is Selling. You, um, you, you preempted me on, uh, in terms of what you were most surprised about. What were, what were some other surprising things uh, that you learned from those focus groups? Yeah, I, well, one thing that I think I kind of knew intuitively but hadn't spent enough time talking to real people about it was the way that the education system isn't performing on behalf of people who, uh, I, you know, who are sort of in this demographic group. And, and you know, we talked to uh, one guy who uh, found a, a career after a, a couple missteps along the way, eventually found a career as an HVAC installer. Um, and he talked about just the tremendous demand for labor he's seeing in the trades and the fact that if you go to a high school guidance counselor they'll never tell you about it and and they'll sort of push you down the college for all track in a way that uh doesn't do any favors especially not for young men who who may not be sort of academically inclined and, and just want to find a job that they can do that'll support a family and and they don't need a college degree to go work you know installing cable somewhere but but they don't necessarily know about those options and so i think hearing I, obviously that's something that that you sort of hear spoken about, but hearing somebody who's actually talking about that and how it affected their life and how he just didn't realize about those options that are available, I think that was really powerful uh, and, and something that we need to do more thinking about. So besides um, thinking about the trades and, and maybe diverting some people off the college track and into the trades, uh, you, you talked about the dignity of labor and the importance of that. What are some, you know, if you could summarize, what were kind of the key findings or policy findings or takeaways uh, from the study that, that you think needs to be given a significant attention going forward? Well, one thing is just the idea that I kind of alluded to earlier, that some a lot of parents that we talk to in this demographic, uh, again, these are white, Black, and Hispanic working class parents, um, all, all making, you know, certainly above the poverty line, but, but, but not, uh, you know, uh, six figures by any means. Um, a lot of these families wish that they could have a parent stay home, especially if they had young kids. Um, and the idea that they wanted to outsource their their four-year-old to some childcare center so the mom could go work at a, a job where she wouldn't be earning a ton, maybe just enough to pay for the cost of childcare and then collect the kid at the end of the day and come home, really didn't seem rewarding to them. But and they felt like they, in some cases they had no choice and the cost of living and, and the cost of housing and healthcare and some of these things were rising so fast that they, that they felt pushed into having both parents in that labor force, even though that's really not what they wanted. And we accompanied this with a survey that we did in, in collaboration with uh, the uh, conservative thinking American Compass, which asked a, a sort of representative, uh, you know, a survey of people if they wanted uh, a, a child, or both parents working or, or, or one parent working and one at home. And if you break that out among sort of college uh, education, it, the um, results are, are pretty, pretty striking in terms of, you know, about maybe a third, a little more than a third of, of, of families where a parent has a bachelor's degree or more 
uh, said that they wanted both parents working full time. But when you had families with without uh, a four year degree, it was closer to one in four or less than that. And and I think that conversation is just completely lost in the conversation around we have to increase GDP, we have to increase labor force participation, these sort of green eye shades conversations that take place in DC without thinking about what parents really want, especially when they have young kids at home. So that was something that I think we should be putting preeminence on as we're talking about this. Yeah, I've seen that data and that really struck me that you know, really the, the push to have two uh, incomes, double incomes in households is really um, folks on the higher end of the education spectrum and this, the socioeconomic spectrum, but lower and middle class families want to have that option of having at least one parent, having one parent stay home. So how do we do that, Patrick? What's, what are some uh, policies or things that we can do to help make that happen? Well, one thing I think is, is uh, negotiating across the aisle on, on what a child benefit package looks like. I happen to be particular to the one that Senator Romney proposed last February. He calls it the Family Security Act. And that would basically consolidate a bunch of the tangle of low-income and middle-class tax credits for things like childcare and, and um, some, some welfare programs and that sort of thing, and just condense them into one monthly benefit that went to every family. Uh, it didn't get a lot of support uh, from his own party, which is unfortunate, but I do think that is the framework that you can imagine a bipartisan uh, consensus coming to, especially as uh, people on the, on the sort of more progressive end of things uh, realize that, that the grand vision for the, the Biden agenda may not actually happen. And so I think uh, the, the sort of reform of the, of the tax code to be indifferent to a parent's choice. So right now, if, you're, if you have a young child at home, you can actually re get reimbursed for your childcare expenses in it, uh, you know, that, that you pay in a way that you can't if you're a stay-at-home parent, right? And so I think just, just rolling all that money into a, a payment that says, we don't care what you do, with your kid. If you want to use this money to pay for childcare, go right ahead. But if you prefer to use that money to, to sort of make it easier for parents to stay home, cover the cost of diapers and food and that sort of thing, then we should do that too. And it, you just put that money in, in the hands of parents and let them choose, as well as doing things to make it, you know, make it, you know, boost sort of earnings and, and wages and, and make it easier for, for, pay, for workers to, to, um, to sort of see their take home pay increase as well. But I think First, we should do no harm. And I think there's a lot of policies out there that sort of presume a model of, of work and family life that, that places the preeminence too, too much on work uh, and, and sort of the, the idea of work as a career rather than realizing it as, as something that's good, but that should be in balance with, with our responsibilities for our family. So along similar lines, the Romney plan was the Biden child tax credit or a child allowance. What are your thoughts on that in terms of uh, what seems to be its ability or so far to be reducing child hunger, child poverty? Is that a viable model going forward at the federal level or maybe even taking that if it doesn't get extended at the federal level down to the state level and then maybe do something similar there? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I have I have been a supporter of of some sort of universal child allowance for, for a couple of years now, and and I, I think it has a lot to recommend it. I I as I said before, I'm I'm sort of more partial to the Romney approach because I think it, it does actually improve the this sort of system that we have right now, rather than just pouring more money on onto it. I think there's been a lot of 
sort of hiccups with the rollout of the Biden of the Biden plan. And some of that will get worked out as we go. But I think it's a missed opportunity to just put more money into the existing child tax credit rather than thinking about ways we can be actually getting this money into, into parents' hands more easily and more effectively and, and, and making it more fiscally sustainable. Because I think if you if you look at the long-term budget impact of, of some of what's being proposed, especially, you know, the, the uh, child care provisions and some of these other things that are, that are sort of part and parcel of the Biden administration's approach, these things are, are, are too expensive for certainly a lot of people on the right. And even as you're seeing some, some folks on the sort of center left as well. So having a way to uh, provide benefits to families and do it sustainably, I think is a way that, that really appeals to me. And I think that can, that can secure a, um, a future for this sort of payment. But as we, as we heard in these focus groups, I think the idea of when there are households that aren't earning income, and there aren't a ton, but I think they loom large in our political imagination, wanting to be cognizant of, of that um, as a potential hurdle, um, and, and sort of, as I, as I gestured to you in, in the New York Times piece, um, that can, that if, if you don't address that concern that parents are having, that, that this money is going to be wasted or abused, um, I, I think that that can spell doom for the the Biden version of the child tax credit going forward. And so, uh, you know, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia has talked about um, needing to show a W-2 or, or some, so, some sort of way of just verifying that you were earning income last year to make you eligible. I think that could have a, a potential uh, future. And, and so I think this is going to be negotiated as we go forward. But I, I think we shouldn't be content to just rest on pouring money into the old system. We should be thinking about how to make it better. And that's I'm hoping where things will go. Patrick, there's a lot of talk about what Hungary, the nation, is doing in terms of rolling out a whole series of uh, benefits and tax credits and all sorts of other things to encourage family formation. Birth rates are up. Marriage rates are up. Abortion rates are down. Divorce rates are down. What are are your thoughts on sort of the package of things that Hungary has been doing? I think Hungary is really interesting for showing us that the status quo is not sacred, that we can be thinking about these things in a different way, that we can be not beholden to whatever the DC consensus is. So I think that's good. I do think that we don't have to content ourselves with, with, just, modest, with just fiscal policy when it comes to, to making family life easier. And I, I think that if you're going into uh, discussions of family policy with the idea that this will increase birth rates, you're probably bound to be disappointed. I think you know, the hungry numbers, I, it's not that they're bad. It's just, I think, you know, you, I think some people would hope for, for sort of a, a bigger response uh, that, that given the money that they're spending. That being said, I think there are ways that, that policymakers and, and politicians should be thinking about making family life easier. That doesn't have to do with money necessarily, but does have a role for government. So whether that's building more walkable neighborhoods so parents can walk to the church or walk to the park and, and have more close-knit community life. Whether that's reforming how we administer healthcare, not necessarily how it's delivered or, or how it's funded, but just the tangle of administration and paperwork and networks that, that weigh on parents' minds when they're trying to figure out you know, how they're gonna, you know, who even do I pay when I have my child in the hospital, much less why is this you know, five figures uh, that I wasn't expecting. These sort of things that really do impact people's lives. I, I talked about sort of uh, uh, scheduling practices at, at workplaces that can leave people 
uh, on the hook, you know, all of a sudden, you know, needing to find childcare at a late moment's notice or, or not having a predictable set schedule. Those kind of things, I think, are, are real problems that people talk about and people experience that are, are ways that, that we should be thinking about the government being involved in. And so it's not just enough to say, um, you know, hand over a check and, and let the market take care of everything else. I think that that won't necessarily get to the results we wanted if we're actually uh, convinced that we need to make society more family friendly. And so I'm hoping that people will think about that dimension as well. Well, we say in Catholic social teaching that the family is the foundational unit of society, and you're doing some great work helping us think about some of the policy and economic dimensions of uh, fostering family formation and family stability. So very grateful for your work. Patrick Brown, where can people go to find more about uh, your work and the work of the Ethics and Public Policy Center? Sure. Uh, if they're interested, they can always follow me on Twitter at PPBWrite, uh, or they can go to the Ethics Public Policy Center, uh, which is evpc.org, and, and you'll find all of the uh, usual social media channels there as well. Patrick Brown, thanks for your great work, and thanks for joining us on the Bridge Builder program today. Great to be here. Thanks so much. And we'll be back in a moment with this week's action item. Welcome back to the Bridge Builder Program. Kit, what do you have for us this week as far as an action item? Yeah, so people can start bridging that gap between their faith and public life. And you just had a really great conversation about providing for parents and children, really reinforcing the family. And now it's October, it's Respect Life Month. So it's a great opportunity for you to reach out to your nearest pregnancy resource center. See how you might be able to help meet the needs of parents who are expecting a little one. Maybe your own young children have recently, they've outgrown some of their clothing or maybe the toys they're not using anymore. You could donate those. So really keeping it at a local level, how can you help the families in need in your community? Um, there's a lot of parishes that have donation drives this month. You might see a crib set up, things like that. So Maybe consider buying some blankets or bottles, whatever those needs might be. Jason, do you have any other ideas on how people could really help families, maybe especially during Respect Life Month? Well, we need to think about uh, building the bridge between uh, prenatal policy and, and protecting the unborn, but also um, after birth and supporting mothers and families in ways uh, that are prudent and helpful. In the past, we have been uh, advocating for things like child nutrition programs, the first 1,000 days of life, how can we support mothers and families, particularly uh, low-income families. So the best way to do this is to join the Catholic Advocacy Network if you're not already a part of it, mncatholic.org, and go join the Catholic Advocacy Network, and you can receive updates about all kinds of issues and public policies that the church is talking about in the public arena to strengthen families, to help mothers, both uh, and help those children before birth, but also after birth as well. So bridging uh, prenatal and postnatal public policy, uh, that's, that's key to supporting uh, healthy starts for kids and families. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's all we have time for today. So thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. Remember, if you're listening on the radio, you can always catch us on our podcast app as well or on our YouTube channel for some of our extended conversations. We don't always have time on the radio for everything. 
And while you're there, make sure to click subscribe. That way you'll be notified and never miss any of our latest episodes. Remember, leave us a comment or send me an email. The address is show at mncatholic.org. And you can catch any of our past episodes on our website, mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. Thanks to our new, our listeners and also our new viewers who are uh, tuning in online to watch the program today. I've got a face made for radio and I apologize for that, but it's fun to have a new platform where sometimes you'll be able to hear extended conversations with our guests. Uh, Thanks for tuning in today in either platform. We'll be back again next week with another great guest. More of your comments and questions and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins and for Kitsipaniac. Thanks for joining the Bridge Builder program. Take care and God bless.